Oh, hi there. John Allen here. I am the editor and president of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at www.cruxnow.com. And I am also the host of this show, which is Last Week in the Church. Now, this is the show where we take essentially stale Catholic news, kind of old leftover stuff, because it happened in some cases a week ago. But we throw it into the skillet, we add some special spices, our special Crux brand secret sauce, heat it up, serve it up for you, steaming hot and delicious. This is a special edition of Last Week in the Church because we're not coming to you from Rome, as usual, but we are coming to you from beautiful, spectacular, singular, irreplaceable, crown jewel of the universe, Key West, Florida, where my wife, Elise Ann, and I say hello to the good people, Elise. Hello. Hi there, Elise. We love to spend as much time as we possibly can, and this year we were able to bank it down to, or, well, across from Rome, I suppose, to Key West to uh, celebrate our wedding anniversary, which is coming up on Tuesday. So if you happen to think about it on Tuesday, send us a special thought, special prayer. We would be very grateful. But the fact that we are in Key West does not mean we don't have our eyes on Rome, ladies and gentlemen. So here's the menu we have for you this week. Number one. Bad news out of Munich, a blockbuster report on sexual abuse in the Archdiocese of Munich in Germany over the last 75 years, documents almost 500 cases and casts an accusing finger at Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. Two, Mustafa makes it to Italy, the five-year-old limbless Syrian boy born that way because his mother breathed in toxic gas during a chemical weapon strike during the Syrian Civil War, as a result of efforts led by the Catholic Church in Italy, has relocated with his family to Siena and will be taken care of by the Church as they begin their process of integration into Italian society. Third, the Pope strikes another blow for women. Pope Francis, on Sunday, formally installed women as catechists and lectors of the Catholic Church, ministries formerly reserved only to men. Fifth, have we seen the last March for Life? At this year's annual pro-life rally in Washington, the crowd was abuzz with optimism that the 50-year rule of Roe v. Wade may almost be over. And finally, Upheaval in Ukraine as fears mount of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Both the European Catholic bishops and Pope Francis are finding creative ways to express their concern. That's what we've got for you this week, so please stick around. Oh, uh, right, uh, the show. All right, so first up this week, bad news out of Munich. Although there is a sense in which it is actually good news, let me explain. You may remember that earlier this year, Cardinal Reinhard Marx of the Archdiocese of Munich in Germany offered to resign not over any personal failures or cover-ups on his part, but rather out of a sense of corporate responsibility 
for the failures of the Catholic Church in Germany. And this was after a troubling report from the Archdiocese of Cologne regarding abuse cases and failures to respond appropriately there. At the time, one of the things Marx said is that a report, a similar report about Munich was on its way. The Archdiocese of Munich, under Marx's leadership, had hired an outside law firm to dig through its files, interview survivors, witnesses, others, church personnel, try to put together a comprehensive report about instances of sexual abuse, clerical sexual abuse, in the Archdiocese of Munich over basically almost the last 75 years. That report was issued last week. It found that there were at least 474 such cases, that is almost 500 cases, of clerical sexual abuse in the Archdiocese of Munich over that 75-year period. And it also found that a string of archbishops, in some cases cardinal archbishops of Munich, had essentially failed to respond appropriately to those claims, much as we have seen church leadership in past decades failed to respond appropriately in many, many other parts of the world. Now, all of that probably would be considered absolutely predictable about what you would have, would have expected, and perhaps not a media thunderclap, except that one of those former cardinal archbishops of Munich went on to become the pope. Pope Benedict XVI, prior to his election and prior to his almost 25-year run in the Vatican as the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, had briefly served as the Archbishop of Munich to, from 1977 to 1982. He was appointed to Munich by St. Pope Paul VI and then brought to Rome not long thereafter by St. Pope John Paul II. Actually, John Paul II wanted Ratzinger to come to the Vatican as early as 1979 to run the Congregation for Catholic Education. Ratzinger at that point turned him down because he said he hadn't been in Munich long enough. But in 1982, John Paul came to Ratzinger again and said, I want you to run the Congregation for the Faith. And at that point, John Paul made it clear that this really wasn't up for discussion. There was no discernment for Cardinal Ratzinger to do because the decision had essentially been made for him. But that meant that Ratzinger was in charge of the Archdiocese of Munich from 1977 to 1982. This report found four cases during that span of time, four cases of clerical sexual abuse, and in each instance, it spotted problems in the way those cases were handled. However, if you drill down to the details of the report, here's the thing. In one of those four instances, the report itself exonerates Ratzinger. What it says is that there was a priest in Munich who vacationed outside the diocese in a parish where Cardinal Ratzinger himself also would occasionally visit. And the authors of the report essentially inferred early on in their research that that meant that Ratzinger had to have knowledge of this priest's conduct because allegedly some of the abuse occurred while this priest was vacationing in this parish outside the archdiocese. But in question and answer session with the researchers on the report, Pope Benedict denied knowing anything about this priest's activities at this parish. And in fact, 
Apparently, the paper trail never suggests that they were there at the same time or that their paths crossed. So the authors ended up concluding that there really is no evidentiary basis for asserting that Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, must have known. And because there's no other evidence that would suggest that he dropped the ball in regard to this particular priest, the author said the available evidence actually exonerates him. So it's not four, it's actually three cases in the report where questions are raised. Of the remaining three, one of those is a case involving a priest by the name of Peter Hulerman. And this case has actually been extensively examined because it came up in 2010 when the first wave of sexual abuse crises were sweeping across Europe. The Süddeutsche Zeitung, which is the big daily newspaper in Bavaria, the region of Germany that includes Munich, also includes Pope Francis's hometown of Regensburg, or Pope Francis, sorry, Pope Benedict's hometown of Regensburg. That, that newspaper broke the Hulerman story and indicated that he was a priest who came from another diocese called Essen. He was given permission under, under Cardinal Archbishop Ratzinger to relocate in Munich and to have pastoral capacities in Munich. And even though there were apparently rumors, allegations of abuse against Tullerman in Essen, nevertheless, that wasn't checked when he came into Munich, so they didn't do any kind of background check, and he was allowed to continue to minister in the archdiocese. Now, the thing about this accusation is that at the time it became public, in 2010, the former vicar general of the Archdiocese of Munich, a German priest by the name of Father Gerhard Gruber, said that it was the practice in the Archdiocese of Munich at that time that the vicar general, not the archbishop, made personnel decisions. Gruber said that I made this decision to allow Hulerman into the diocese. I never discussed it with Cardinal Ratzinger, and he had no involvement in it. So at that time, everyone's conclusion was, therefore, Ratzinger, in the sense of personal complicity in this failure, I mean, obviously, he was the guy in charge, the buck stops in his desk. But in terms of personal involvement, he essentially had clean hands. He didn't have anything to do with it. Now, we are going to have to see what happens with these other two cases as other researchers and investigative reporters and so on take up the, the, the hunt. But if it was the practice in Munich at the time that the archbishop wasn't involved in personnel decisions, then likely the same conclusion that people drew about the Hullerman case can be drawn about these other two. We will see. And none of this, by the way, is to diminish the fact that clerical sexual abuse happened unchecked on the future Pope's watch, nor is it in any way to diminish the reality of the suffering of those almost 500 victims in the Archdiocese of Munich over the last 75 years. It is, however, to say that given Pope Benedict's track record as Pope, remember, the reform on clerical sexual abuse began in most ways under Pope Benedict. The legal changes and the practice of swift uh, laicization of abuser priests, in effect, weeding abusers out of the priesthood, began under Benedict. So aggressive did it become that during one year alone, during his eight-year papacy, almost 400 abuser priests were laicized. 
and Pope Francis, every ex from Pope Francis on down, everyone involved in the reform today will acknowledge that it began and gathered steam under Pope Benedict. Giving all of that, there is no basis, I think, to conclude that, that Pope Benedict was ever a willing co-conspirator in the cover-up of child sexual abuse. I do think we have to say that when he was a cardinal archbishop, that is, when he had an archdiocese to run 30 years ago, his management suffered from the same deficiencies, the same holes, the same breakdowns when it comes to the protection of children as pretty much every other archbishop in the Catholic Church of that era. And that, however personally responsible Pope Benedict may be, that nevertheless remains a sad and distressing truth about the Catholic Church. All right. Shifting gears, we relocate from Munich in Germany to Siena in Italy, where this Sunday, this Sunday, a family from Syria celebrated its first classic Italian pranzo di domenica, that is, the, the Sunday lunch. Footnote, my wife and I had Sunday brunch today at a restaurant called Matt's Stock Island. It's located on the Perry Hotel in Stock Island just over the bridge from Key West here. If you are ever in the Key West area, you have got to go to Matt's Stock Island for their Sunday brunch. I am getting no sponsorship. They are not a sponsor of this show, but I am telling you, it is a transcendental, quasi-sacramental experience. All right, anyway, in Siena, the family of Mustafa, his father, Muzinir, his mom, uh, and his two sisters, are now living in an apartment provided by the Catholic charity Caritas. After Caritas worked with the Italian Foreign Ministry with the intervention of Cardinal Augusto Lo Giudice of Siena to arrange emergency entrance visas into Italy for the entire family from the refugee camp in Turkey where they have been living for the last three years. Now, why them? Well, Basically, because Mustafa became a global cause celeb, that he became an especial cause celeb in the city of Siena. Because an Italian photographer who was visiting these Turkish refugee camps took a picture of, Muzini, of Mustafa, a child born without any limbs, that is, no arms, no legs, because his mother during pregnancy had breathed in toxic gas released during a chemical weapons attack by the regime of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad on the city in Syria where they were living. And as a result of breathing in that toxic gas, she obviously had difficulties during pregnancy, resulting in the deformations in Mustafa. This photographer took a shot of Mustafa being, being held up in the air and kind of played with by his dad, Muzinir. Muzinir on a crutch because he lost a leg during the bombings as a result of the Syrian civil conflict. The photographer titled this photo, The Hardships of Life, and what made the photo just sing and capture hearts everywhere is that these two people, you know, five-year-old Mustafa and the adult father, Muzinir, despite having suffered some of the, the most agonizing pain and hardships in this life you can possibly imagine. The joy on their faces as the dad was holding the kid up and kind of spinning him around. 
the, the joy, just the love that they obviously share for one another was just infectious. And the juxtaposition of that, the beauty, the joy, the agony and the pain, it's, it's a unique, unique photograph. The photographer, who was Italian, entered it in this international photo competition that's staged every year in the city of Siena. It, of course, won. And the Sienese, therefore, kind of adopted Mustafa as their own. The Catholic Church took a lead role. Under the leadership of Cardinal Le Giudice, the organizational capacity of the Archdiocese of Siena and its local branch of Caritas. Caritas vowed that it would provide housing for the family, that it would provide money for their food and their clothing. It would, give, it would provide them pocket money until they're able to find work. It will also oversee the process of getting the kids into the schools getting the, the mom and dad into language school, and, and basically their whole process of integration. They're also going to help them forge friendships with parishioners in Siena, so they have a network of support. And basically, this whole experience engineered by the Catholic Church is a miracle for this family. Uh, the, the national broadcasting network, RAI, last Friday when they flew from Turkey to Italy, had a camera crew with them in their, in their refugee camp in Turkey, followed them in the van on the way to the airport. And the mother and father, of course, speaking Arabic through a translator, both essentially said the same thing, that they, they were essentially hopeless. And in particular, with regard to Mustafa, they, there was no way they could afford the medical treatment he needed. And, and they just were bereft of ideas about what to do. And they said this whole thing has fallen upon them like a miracle. And, and specifically, they said, look, we're Muslims, but this is a miracle worked by the Catholic Church and by the Italians. And it's just, it is a remarkable, remarkable story. Now, I told you that on our menu, we had five items, but just as a bonus feature, kind of a, a special side dish this week, I'm going, to, I'm going to throw in a brief, pompous, moralizing rift to connect the previous two stories, that is Munich and Mustafa. Here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. What we learned out of Munich, that almost 500 innocent people, virtually all of them minors, were sexually abused by Catholic priests ordained to save their souls, is undeniably inextricably part of the Catholic story. But so is Mustafa and Muzanir and his family. This is a family living in squalor, forgotten by the world, hopeless in terms of the future, that has been lifted out of that situation and given a new lease on life, largely thanks to the big hearts and the organizational wherewithal of the Catholic Church. That's the Catholic Church for you, ladies and gentlemen. It will break your heart, and it will stitch it back together and inject it with new hope on a regular basis, often on a weekly basis, and that's what we saw last week. Conclusion, you can't tell the Catholic story with just the heartache or just the hope. If you emphasize one or the other, you're engaging in a funhouse mirrors exercise that distorts the image you're seeing.
To have an accurate picture, you have to hold both in the frame. All right, moving on. The Pope strikes another blow for women. In January, the Pope, Pope Francis made a decision, issued a legal decree, opening the ministries, the traditional Catholic ministries, of lector and acolyte to women. Lector and acolyte were traditionally one of the four ministries future priests would acquire on their way to the priesthood, and therefore those ministries were, of course, restricted to men. Pope Francis broke down that door, opened it up to laity, including women. Then in March, Pope Francis instituted the new ministry of catechists, also opened that to all laity, including women. And this Sunday, a Sunday set aside to the celebration of an observance Pope Francis also created, Sunday of the Word of God, Pope Francis presided over a ceremony in St. Peter's Basilica where, for the very first time, he personally, that is, a pope, for the very first time, conferred the ministries of lector and acolyte on both men and women. These men and women came from all around the world, some of them from Latin America, some of them from Europe, some of them from Africa, some of them from Asia. There, by the way, there, were, there was nobody from the United States on the list, but nevertheless, a globally representative group of people. And it is another indication of the ways in which Pope Francis is trying to walk his own talk about the role of women in the Catholic Church. You may remember, near the very beginning of his papacy, Pope Francis said, there is a need to increase the presence of women in the Church, including their presence, in the authoritative realms where decisions are made. Pope Francis has tried to honor that in a variety of ways. He has appointed women to head important Vatican posts, Vatican offices, including the Vatican Museums. He appointed, at one point, a female vice director of the Vatican Press Office. He's appointed female officials in other departments of the Vatican. Recently, he appointed a woman as a decision-making official in the office of the Synod of Bishops, and also indicated that for the very first time, a woman is going to have voting rights in the next Synod of Bishops. The Synod on Synodality, which is underway right now, but will come to a crescendo with a gathering in Rome in 2023. And this is sort of if you like, another piece of that picture, another way in which Pope Francis is trying to honor the dignity, the importance, the contributions of women by letting them walk through doors that were formerly open only to men. So how do you evaluate Pope Francis's track record on women? Well, you know, I would put it this way. If you are one who believes that all the rest of this is smoke and mirrors until we have women priests and women deacons. That is, until Pope Francis approves the ordination of women to the clerical state, then you're, you're going to see all of this as tokenism that doesn't really add up to very much. However, if you are more of a pragmatist who takes the position that, you know, popes, the last series of popes, from Paul VI to John Paul II to Pope Francis, have made it clear that the door to women's ordination is closed. 
And whatever you privately make of that, when three popes in a row, and by the way, Benedict very much agreed with that, oh, he didn't really find occasion to say it out loud, but four popes in a row, representing, by the way, very different in some ways, political and ecclesiological outlooks. But nevertheless, that group of four popes with their different backgrounds, different perspectives, different agenda, all four of them have said no to women's ordination, then practically, I think you can draw the conclusion that at least for the foreseeable future, the answer is no. Now, the question is, if the answer to that question is no, is that the only way to go about empowering women in the Catholic Church? If you accept on principle that there are other ways to do it, then I think you would have to give Francis fairly high marks for being creative, determined, and consistent about trying to exploit those opportunities to enhance the role of women when they present themselves. In other words, this is kind of a glass half full or glass half empty situation. Glass half full says, look, women's ordination is off the table, but in virtually every other way that matters, Pope Francis seems determined to make progress. Glass half empty would say, yeah, but the only thing that matters is ordination. Priesthood equals power in the Catholic Church. Until you break down that wall, you know, the rest of this doesn't mean very much. And listen, it's up to you. I mean, you have the choice to decide which of those perspectives you want to adopt. That's another unfortunate truth about the Catholic Church. Sometimes it doesn't come down to objective reality so much as your gut as to whether we're making progress or we aren't. All right, fourth up this week, the March for Life. This, of course, is that massive pro-life rally that has taken place in Washington, D.C., on the Mall, every year since 1973 to mark the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion in America. The rally this year took place on Friday, so two days before the anniversary, and it was encumbered by a variety of factors. One of them is COVID-19. Washington is enacting severe limits on the number of people who can take part in public events because, you know, they don't want to risk creating a super spreader event. In addition, there were a number of people who chose not to travel to the March for Life, but instead to follow it online or participate in it at a distance, maybe to stage their own local events, because they didn't want to deal with the hassles of travel or simply because they were concerned about being exposed to the virus. In addition, the Associated Press has also reported, based on their interviews with people at the march, there were apparently some very conservative marchers who are opposed to vaccine mandates, opposed to wearing masks. And Washington, D.C. is requiring people to show proof of vaccination to get into restaurants and hotels. Apparently, some people didn't want to put up with that. But in any event, for a variety of different reasons, COVID put a real damper on turnout at the march. The other big factor was the weather. Here's the thing. It was a high of, D- of 27 degrees in D.C. on Friday, and there was also a strong Arctic wind that was blowing through the city. So given the wind chill, it was really around zero, stinging, bitterly cold. Obviously, that kept some people indoors as well. But nevertheless, thousands and thousands 
of people showed up in person for the march, and all the reporting suggests that they were unusually optimistic, bullish, uh, if you like, about the prospects of the pro-life cause this year. Because sometime this spring, the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to rule on a challenge well, on a challenge to a law in Mississippi banning abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy. Now, what is significant about that is that the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision held that it was unconstitutional to ban abortion before the fetus reaches viability, which was and is traditionally re- reckoned to occur around the 22nd week of pregnancy. If the Supreme Court upholds the Mississippi law, and I guess the smart money believes that they will, there is a six to three conservative majority on the court now, it will mark the first time the Supreme Court has upheld a restriction on abortion rights prior to the 22nd week, that that, uh, viability threshold. And it it is possible Uh, So let us put it this way. It seems likely that the court will uphold the the Mississippi law. It is possible that in so doing, they may formally declare Roe v. Wade overturned. One of the speakers at the March for Life this year said that we should pray that this is going to be the last time we have to do this because the March for Life is held as a kind of protest of that Roe v. Wade decision. Should the Supreme Court repeal or modify it, it may be that marchers will decide that, that the march has achieved its purpose, that in effect they have won. And so we will see. But in any event, 2022 shapes up as a monumental year for the pro-life cause. Footnote, if the Supreme Court does what is expected, upholds the Mississippi law, perhaps modifies or repeals Roe v. Wade, don't think. But that's the end to the abortion debate in America, because there is still a very powerful and influential pro-choice constituency that is not simply going to fold up its tents and go home, both judicious in the judicial system and also in legislatures around the country. They will continue to press their cause. This issue is going to be with us for some time to come. The question is whether it is going to continue to pivot about around Roe v. Wade or whether we will have a new abortion landscape in America. All right, fourth on the lineup this week. The, or sorry, that was the fourth item. Fifth on the lineup this week, fifth and finally, upheaval in Ukraine. For some time now, the situation in Ukraine has been a pressing matter of global concern. It is well known that Russia has been amassing troops along its border with Ukraine ostensibly because they are concerned that Ukraine is going to launch an offensive against pro-Russian separatists in the eastern regions of Ukraine, and Russia is claiming it would need to come to the rescue under that set of circumstances. But in reality, many people think that this is preparation for a Russian offensive into Ukraine because they are concerned that the pro-Western government under President Vladimir Zelensky is pressing too hard for closer ties with with the West, and in particular for membership in NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, which is the defensive alliance of Western nations, widely perceived as the big rival to Russia and its satellite nations 
in Europe. And so, you know, God only knows what is going to happen. But as this kind of, since the world is sort of sensing a ticking clock to catastrophe in Ukraine, Catholic leaders have been mobilizing to express their concern. Recently, the Council of European Catholic Bishops Conferences issued a statement on behalf of the European bishops, the, the headline of which, I know this, by the way, because this was our headline on Crux, crafted by my ever-clever, ever-sage, ever-savvy wife, Elisa Ann Allen, was that European bishops warn that Russian offensive in Ukraine threatens world peace. And so it was, in a sense, calling out Russia and calling on them, along with the rest of the international community, to de-escalate the conflict. Uh, then, on Sunday, during his traditional noontime Angelus address, Pope Francis expressed his own concern for the situation in Ukraine and specifically designated this coming Wednesday as a day of prayer for peace in Ukraine. Now, in some ways you could say it is utterly natural that the Pope and Catholic bishops around the world are speaking out on behalf of peace. But remember, they have a specific pastoral interest in Ukraine because Ukraine is also home to the largest of the 23 Eastern Catholic churches in union with Rome, the Greek Catholic Church of Ukraine. And the Greek Catholic Church there definitely punches above its weight in terms of its social, social and cultural influence. And if the winds were to shift in Ukraine to a more pro-Russian regime, there, the, the Greek Catholics would probably be walking around with a bullseye on their back, both literally and figuratively. So for reasons both prophetic and pastoral, the power structure of the Catholic Church perceives a real interest in Ukraine. We will see what comes as things develop. We will continue to track it on the Crux site. Again, that is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. All right, that is our show for this week. Alas, it's going to be the last one we do for a while from Key West because Elise and I are heading back to our home in Rome on Thursday. But believe me, I am going to squeeze every last util of pleasure out of this place I can for the next 72 hours. In the meantime, over the course of the next week, please stay safe, stay healthy, keep reading Crooks. We will talk to you again next week from Rome.